California has been under the state of emergency for over 800 days with no end in sight. The governor has a lot of flexibility in terms of declaring these disasters or emergencies and then suspending the normal legislative process for as long as he or she thinks necessary. While the state of emergency may have been necessary during the pandemic, it has led to thousands of no-bid contracts bypassing the standard process of bidding. It's certainly subject to a lot of abuse, and there certainly wasn't enough transparency into how these contracts were awarded, and some of them were poorly chosen. Today, we sit down with Mark Joffe, Senior Policy Analyst with Reason Foundation, who dives deeper into California's no-bid contracts. Right now, there's nothing in there in the emergency declaration as it currently stands that's that really impactful in the sense of restricting us, you know, locking us down, preventing businesses from opening, but it just seems to be an unnecessary continuation of executive authority. Is it in our best interest to continue with the state of emergency? Could there be any potential problems with keeping it in effect? We'll find out in today's episode. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We want to talk to you about the state of emergency. It's been almost 800 days now, and we're still in the state of emergency. Can you tell us more? Yeah, it goes all the way back to March 4th of 2020. So even before we had the lockdowns in mid-March of 2020, uh, Governor Newsom put this whole emergency structure in place, which ultimately gave the state the ability to do the lockdowns, as well as to do no-bid contracts and you know, many other things that uh, were extraordinary powers that were not granted to him by the legislature. Can you tell me more about these no-bid contracts? Because there's, there's been a lot of money that has gone out, right? And, right. and how do they work? Well, so normally uh, when a government uh, procures uh, goods or services, uh, the government agency that's responsible for that procurement uh, writes a, uh, a request for proposals and then companies bid on that uh, request. And then the government agency uh, goes through a process of reviewing all of those bids and chooses the, uh, the vendor that meets its requirements. Now those requirements don't necessarily mean lowest cost or lowest cost and highest quality. There, are co there can be other things that are, that are considered, like for example, whether it's a minority owned business or a veteran owned business, but there's still a formal process for, for deciding. With a no bid contract, Basically, uh, they just find the vendor through some informal means and uh, select that vendor and, and uh, put it through the contract. California has had more than 8,000 no-bid contracts since 2020. Many of the contracts are worth over $25 million. In 2020 alone, the total amount of no-bid contracts almost reached $12 billion. So there is no way of actually evaluating the cost-benefit or like, is, is there a formal process? Right, there's no, there's no formal process of doing that. So you At can least not one that's documented and known to the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So the, the vendors can come in, build a relationship and just propose what they are, exactly. what they want to do, and then there is no price checking, no formal way. Right. Now, I don't think this is necessarily prima facie evidence of being bad or evil. There were extreme situations where, for example, uh, there was a perceived need to have millions of masks, tens of thousands of ventilators, other kinds of uh, 
personal protective equipment. And uh, normally a you know, formal competitive tender could take weeks or months to complete. So it does seem reasonable that you sometimes have to have you know, more efficient ways of, um, of, of assigning business, but it's certainly subject to a lot of abuse. And um, there certainly wasn't enough transparency into how, um, how these contracts were awarded, and some of them were, were, were poorly chosen. Can you give us some examples? So the original uh, mask contract went to a company called Blue Flame, which had been set up uh, three days before uh, the contract award from California, when uh, California uh, wired the company about $450 million to prepay for the masks. Uh, fortunately, the state was saved by a bank. The bank looked at this wire payment, thought it was very suspicious, and decided to disapprove it. So um, because of a bank's intervention, you know, California taxpayers and federal taxpayers who would also have been footing most of this bill were saved from really you know, giving a vendor that was very poorly prepared to supply masks almost half a billion dollars. And then what? what happened? So then they uh, found another company, uh, BYD, to, uh, which is a Chinese company that um, I think originally started more in the automotive sector. Um, and they claimed that they could uh, perform, uh, you know, perform the service of quickly procuring a lot of masks. But there were problems there because some of those masks did not meet federal certifications. There were delays in providing them. So even though we spent a billion dollars, we the taxpayers again of California, it's not clear that we got value for, for money there because there was such a hasty assignment of these contracts. Is there a way, is there a department that actually oversees like how these contracts are handed out when there are no bid? Is there a process? Well, my understanding is there's a general services department that, that sort of handles acquisitions. So, you know, there, is, there are people in place who do these kinds of things, but they really weren't in a position to scale up to, you know, the enormous amounts of money that were being spent and had to be spent so quickly. So it's not surprising that there were problems. Now, it's been almost more than two years now. Is this still um, available, these no-bid contracts? Well, there was, uh, there was an incident in 2021 where um, uh, the California perceived the need to have more testing done. So they made a contract with uh, Perkin Elmer to set up a lab in Valencia here in Southern California. Um, they paid uh, $37.78 per test, which is quite a bit. And the lab really never ramped up to the level that they were expecting. So it never accounted for more than a few percent of the, of the tests that were performed in California. And that was a $1.7 billion uh, total contract. So even last year, we still, had, we still had this going on. I don't think there's a lot right now you know, in terms of outstanding no-bid contracts. But uh, that power is still available to the governor because of this uh, you know, emergency directive that, uh, that he set up 800 days ago. Usually, a wide range of companies get to bid for contract opportunities with the state. This process mitigates favoritism and helps the government get the best deal. But due to the state of emergency, the state was able to bypass the procedure by awarding no-bid contracts. No-bid contracts could open the door for corruption. This emergency directive, doesn't it affect the legislative body? Doesn't it 
make the legislative body weaker in California? It or does, yeah. But this was something that was given away, and it goes way back, and it's not necessarily partisan. So back in the era when uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was the governor, 1970, the Emergency Services Act was, uh, was passed, and this gave the governor very broad authority to declare a state of emergency, and there's a very long list of things that can be uh, categorized as an emergency situation, including pandemics, uh, droughts, um, forest fires, and, and so forth. So the governor has a lot of flexibility in terms of declaring these disasters or emergencies and then suspending the normal legislative process for as long as um, he or she thinks necessary. The legislative body that gave this uh, right to the governor, which is at that time, it makes sense because we have a state of emergency. Do they not want this power back? Or what's the process of getting this power, power back, back or, right. or ending the, the state of emergency? So under the uh, 1970 law, um, if a majority of both houses of the legislature vote to end a particular emergency, it can be ended irrespective of the governor's um, position. But that puts the, uh, the burden on the legislature to proactively uh, end the emergency. And that, that doesn't really happen uh, very often, if at all. So um, a lot of times it's easier for a legislature, a legislator to really uh, sort of outsource his or her power to the governor, and then the governor is responsible for it. So you know, an analogy that I think a lot of people would make is to the um, uh, the war, the wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and Syria. Uh, back in uh, the early 2000s, uh, Congress passed an authorization to use military force. And that was in lieu of a formal declaration of war. So then it became really the president's prerogative to decide whether we were in a wartime situation and, and commit troops, whereas the, f the framers of our Constitution didn't want it that way. They wanted the Congress to explicitly declare war when it was, was necessary. But the advantage for uh, members of Congress is they don't have to worry about being held accountable by the, their uh, constituents for, for example, sending people into a war, which may or may not be necessary, because they can just say, well, you know, the president, that's the president's responsibility. He's taking care of it. So with the pandemic in California and other states, it's often easier for legislators to say, well, I'm not responsible for your business being closed. You know, the governor felt that he needed to do that, and that's just the way it's going to have to be. What about if there's big mistakes? You mentioned these contracts going out, and what if, what if we financially made really big mistakes? And, and it's bound to happen in business whenever you make a yeah. deal. There's always cases. Is this saying that the legislative body in California is kind of giving up on monitoring? Well, there is a bill that passed through the state Senate, uh, SB 947, which does uh, retract the government's ability to do no-bid contracts and puts in legislative oversight. But it's not clear to me that that's going to pass through the assembly. And I think there was an attempt in 2018 to uh, uh, rein in these no-bid contracts that did not get through the entire legislative process. So it is difficult for the legislature to fully assert its, um, its prerogatives here. For transparency reasons, California opened a website to let the public access COVID response contracts valued at $250,000 or more. No bid or limited competition bidding was approved for many contracts out of the hundreds posted. 
to address this issue of the no-bid contracts, the governor has created this website that shows contracts that are over $250,000. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I took a look at that website, and uh, it's not so easy to use. So there's a large number of contracts, and there are a lot of amendments to those contracts. And all those contracts and amendments are in PDF form, which means that uh, they're not in a quote-unquote machine-readable condition that makes it very easy to analyze. So you would really have to invest an enormous amount of time plowing through that website to really understand the status of all these contracts. And you mentioned the contracts are there. If experts from the industry, they, they say, okay, you know what, what the state bought, we probably can't do it at half the price. Right. Is there a process for people to come forward or question what happened? I think they can question it in the media, but it's not clear to me that anyone can can go to the state and say, well, you know, I can do this for half the price, uh, cancel your contract and give it to me. I don't really see a precedent for that. Or is there a process for people outside of the government to come and at least give feedback? Because when there's no bidding in a, in a contract process, if you're a buyer, you really don't know what you're going to get. Somebody can charge you three times the price. Well, times that, the price. That, see, that's <laughs> why, that's the v value of having a competitive bidding process. So. Uh, I was involved with a contract in the state of Florida, which w had very strict rules around, uh, around that. And um, I was not personally one of the bidders, but I worked with some of the companies that were, were bidding on it. So I really learned a lot about the uh, process. And there was a very extensive bid package. Then they had a phone call where uh, the people in the state explained uh, exactly what their objectives were, and they took any questions from potential bidders. And then three or four weeks later, all these bid packages arrived. Some of them were as long as 70 pages. And then it was up to the people in the state agency to review all these packages. So by looking at the different packages, you could see how different vendors were thinking about issues differently. And you could see potential contradictions and conflicts that would really allow the state administrators to think, think about this deeply. So that's what gets short-circuited when you just do a no-bid contract and, and award you it in two days. You pick one vendor and you just award it in a few days. Because that vendor doesn't really have any incentive to tell you what his or her sh uh, shortcomings are. You might only learn that from a competitor, but if you don't go through a competitive process, you might not learn it at all. Do you think that we should have changed that at some point along the way, a few months later after the pandemic, when things got a lot easier? Yeah. More under, we could understand the virus more and we should exactly. have changed. I think that's the problem with uh, having something be considered an emergency indefinitely. I think it was an emergency in March because we knew something bad was coming. Like uh, there had been very bad things happening in Wuhan and then in northern Italy and in uh, parts of Spain. So we were in for something really bad. We didn't have enough information to completely understand it. And so it was a very fluid situation. But within a couple of months, uh, we had a lot of evidence from New York and New Jersey and other states, and we sort of really knew what the parameters were going to be. And so it's a problem, but I don't necessarily think it's an, an emergency. And, you know, and right now, you know, we have a situation where people are continuing to get COVID, to get sick from COVID, and die from it. But the level of uh, casualties you know, is less than what happens from automobile driving. And yet we don't consider automobile driving to be an emergency because we understand it's an understandable risk. It's not a risk that uh, is poorly defined and not yet understood. So we really shouldn't be having an emergency for a protracted period of time. 
Now, the governor got criticized. Some people are criticizing the governor for actually renewing some of these contracts uh, under the no bid, even in 2021 yeah. and later. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, um, once we understand things and once we have more predictable ideas about the amount of you know, masks or tests or whatever we need, um, and we understand uh, that there are multiple sources that can produce those goods or provide those services, it seems like it should just go through the normal process and, and get all the benefits that we have from competitive bidding. Right now, 15 states are still under state of emergency. 12 of them have a deadline coming up for the emergency to end. Only California, Washington, and West Virginia's state of emergency has no end in sight. When you're doing these no-bid contracts, is there the relationship or, you know, if you have a favor, that can come into play, right? Yeah, it can, it can happen. Uh, uh, you may have impropriety or you may have the appearance of impropriety um, because people have relationships. So the fact that uh, a contract goes to somebody, uh, journalists or, or other watchdogs can look at it and say, well, that person's related to that person who's ultimately related to the uh, owner of the company who's going to make a profit off of this. And so even if there's actually nothing wrong that's happening, and even if they're, they're doing the best they can to make an objective decision, it can still get questioned because it hasn't gone through the proper process. So the state of emergency, it seems like there's not that many more no-bid contracts that are, that are going through. Should we worry about this or should we just not think about it? Well, I think we, we have to worry about it more in the conceptual frame as opposed to what the current effects of the emergency order as it exists in July of, uh, of 2022. So right now, we have more spread of coronavirus in most counties in California than we did during the time of the blueprint. So in the blueprint, we had the worst tier was purple. And purple meant that all indoor non-essential businesses had to be closed. So right now, if we were still operating under the blueprint in all the large counties in California, all the major businesses and restaurants and gyms and so forth would be closed. So it's just because we've had an attitude adjustment that we're no longer there. But what if you know, BA5 or another variant continues to percolate and we get into a situation where the governor becomes more concerned? what's to stop him from reimposing lockdown? So the, the problem really is not necessarily with what's happening right now with the emergency order. It's the fact that he has the power to reinstitute lockdowns. Another thing that might be more salient in late 2022 is the issue with water. So back in the uh, Brown administration, there was an emergency order to cut water utilization by 25%. So even if you were already taking a short shower, shower you'd have to take a 25% shorter shower. Well, we're in a drought right now. So could it be that the governor will put in some really, really restrictive emergency water restrictions that will um, you know, prevent uh, ordinary Californians from going about their business, even though urban water consumption is a very, very small part of overall water use in California? So essentially, we've given a lot of power to the governor's office, and he can do things really quickly with this uh, state of emergency. Yes, and you know, as we dis discussed previously, this water uh, emergency is not something that's sudden. We, it's the slowest moving thing you can possibly imagine. We 
We've seen that for months there has not been normal rainfall, and now it's been several years where we've uh, not had normal, normal rainfall. We've been below normal. So we can see that a water emergency or a water shortage is coming. We don't have to necessarily treat it as something that requires dynamic executive action. It can be handled through you know, normal processes. Now, about the state of emergency, is there any reasons why we should keep it, that the governor has kept it? There's some medical reasons, yes. right? Is there? So uh, on June 17th, we had the latest reduction in the emergency declaration. So it's been fine-tuned many, many times over the course of the you know, two-plus years that the pandemic has been going on. So if you look at it right now, and you know, one thing I just want to say is a little bit of a detour, is it's a little bit hard to go through these proclamations because uh, Governor Newsom and previous governors issue proclamations that edit or alter the effects of previous proc proclamations. And so you have to collect all the proclamations and read all of them to sort of see what it all adds up to. Whereas when the legislature passes laws that amend previous statutes, those are all codified and they're very easily searchable on the legislative website. So that's one problem is sort of the lack of uh, transparency there. But you know, having gone through all of this to the best of my ability, my conclusion is basically the only things that are left are a series of steps to reduce regulations on um, EMS providers, hospitals, daycare centers, and um, nurse practitioners and other so-called mid-level providers. So um, our laws in California and in most states have a lot of restrictions on you know, who can practice medicine, how medicine is practiced, and so forth. And a lot of those restrictions were relaxed at the beginning because we just needed to flood the zone with medical capacity. And the governor has seen fit to uh, continue a lot of those waivers. As a libertarian, you know, I, I like the idea that there should be more flexibility in terms of you know, people being able to find the medical provider that, that they think is best suited to their, their needs, regardless of what the licensing situation is. But if we as a state think that, that there's too restrictive licensing, there's a simple way to fix that, which is to pass legislation to relax licensing requirements, as opposed to continuing to use a process to override the regular legislative process. So to just uh, summarize right now, there's nothing in there in the emergency declaration as it currently stands that's that, that's that really impactful in the sense of uh, restricting us, you know, locking us down, preventing businesses from opening, but it just seems to be an unnecessary continuation of executive authority. And how much power does this give to the governor's office to, to sign contracts, to do a lot of things? What powers does it give to the governor's office now? Well, uh, you know, going back to the beginning, it gave him pretty much, you know, again, this is like self-assigned and it's only subject to cancellation by the legislature, pretty much gave him the ability to sign any kind of contract um, he wanted as long as it was uh, related in some way to the pandemic. So pro provided quite a bit of power. And there's another part to this that we've noticed is that you mentioned these contracts, things that went wrong in the process. But if we were to survey average Californians, probably a lot of them have no idea this happened. Correct. But again, you know, I, uh, Cal Matters, uh, which is, I don't see as being politicized one way or another. I mean, they run Dan Walters as conservative, but I've seen a lot of more uh, Democratic-leaning commentary in Cal Matters, and I think a lot of the reporting is either neutral or Democratic-leaning. I think they've, they've done a good job of, um, 
of outing some of these um, of, of outing some of these scandals. Now the question is, you know, that's how far just does one, it get? Yeah, that's one publication. That's not really something that people see directly. It's more producing content for other publications to pick up. So if the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times doesn't do anything with it, its reach isn't, isn't very great. I live in Northern California and I'm very frustrated with the coverage in the San Francisco Chronicle. I see this as being very biased and very supportive of the, the narrative that the local and state government put out there. So that, that does mean that, as you say, the average Californian may not be seeing the ne necessary diversity of opinion and facts to really be able to hold the government accountable. Now, do you think the government in California has lost the connection with the average Californian, or are they still in touch with them, but they're just gone their own direction, or are they losing the average? I think it's mixed. If, if, uh, if the public really asserts itself, then you see the connection. So, you know, we had, uh, we had the lockdown, then we had this thing called the blueprint, where there were the, the, the purple, the red, and so forth, different colors depending on the amount of spread, would, would control how much business could be done, whether you could dine indoors, go to a gym indoors, and so forth. And then when the, um, when the recall started, <clears throat> pretty soon after that, Governor Newsom withdrew the blueprint and basically ended all aspects of the public health emergency and lockdowns. So we got back to pretty much normal in uh, June of 2021. And that, I think, was because he was afraid that voters would... Um, uh, kick him out of office. So there, there was some responsiveness through the, the, the democratic procedure of having a recall. But the day-to-day, -day, it's not like that. And now that Newsom won the recall by such a large majority and doesn't seem to be under a lot of threat of um, you know, losing in November, you get the sense that, um, that they can now sort of act with much more impunity than they did last year. Part of the culture that we have noticed here in California is, and it's, it's kind of national too, but, but it's, it's very obvious here, is that the politics has become more about gaining the seat and staying in the seat rather than doing the right thing. And we have a lot of problems in California right. that nobody's talking about and we've been covering. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, the idea that politicians uh, want to get elected and reelected and will do whatever is safe to stay in their in their seat is a pretty common thing. I don't think it's it's unique to California, uh, but because we've now become pretty much a, a one-party political system, both uh, in the coastal areas locally and then statewide, uh, it does the the cost of going against the governor or other statewide officials seems to be higher than it might it might be if we had more of a diverse you know, political situation. Going back to those no-bid contracts and people that work in the government system, do you think the same culture applies to the people that are doing the day-to-day -day government work? Or do you think that the, the people that are in the government is more connected to our people in California than, than the politicians? I think that that's, that's a mixed bag. Uh, it's interesting, I've, I've visited various offices in Sacramento and. Sacramento is an interesting area because just to the, the uh, east of Sacramento, it gets very red very fast. So you do have, a, I think, a lot of people in state government who are more conservative, um, and they may disagree with a lot of the policies that are coming down from the top. On the other hand, uh, like most bureaucracies, um, uh, there's 
there's often, a, and I don't want to make a blanket statement, I'll just say there's often a lack of original thinking within the within departments in, uh, in, the, uh, in the state of California. So while people may harbor views that are outside of the mainstream, it's less likely that they'll actually act on them because they want to serve their 30, 35 years and, and get their, uh, their pension. Now, Mark, you're a, you're a financial expert and you're seeing the state making decisions with the budget and you're seeing these contracts going out and the way we're handling money. Where do you think we're headed financially? We had this huge surplus. Yes. Well, I think a lot of folks who are more on the conservative side uh, often make the mistake of assuming that just because a state is following certain progressive policies and spending a lot of money, that that means there's going to be some kind of inevitable financial crisis. California is an interesting case because it has a very progressive income tax. It has a corporate tax. And because of Silicon Valley, um, it's collecting an enormous amount of revenue from those taxes. And the people who run Silicon Valley companies, by and large, buy into the, the progressive philosophy that governs the state of California. So just because there are high taxes in California doesn't mean that everybody is going to decamp from Silicon Valley, you know, move to Florida or Texas to avoid those taxes because they're, they're bought into the system and their friends are here and they, they like the ecosystem. So while a lot of people have been driven out of the state, they're going to be people who are more conservative. So in a way now it becomes self-reinforcing. But getting back to your original point, as long as the, those uh, tech companies remain here and generate a lot of uh, personal and corporate income tax revenue, California will continue to do very, very well you know, relative to a lot of other states, both red and blue. Now, do you have any other thoughts for our audience? Well, I think uh, if we look at some of the failures that have happened uh, with you know, the state taking action during COVID, I think we should be very concerned about a new thing that Governor Newsom just signed into the budget, which is this plan to uh, set up an insulin manufacturing facility in the state. You know, I think it's really important that we get insulin prices down. People should not be paying $900 a month to uh, you know, take care of their, uh, their type 1 or type 2 diabetes condition. So it's important that we figure out policies that are going to lower insulin prices. But getting the state involved in producing insulin just seems like the wrong kind of policy and one that will be subject to a lot of the problems that we've talked about in the uh, pandemic cycle. We're going to have state-run companies because it's like, kind of like China. They have their state-run yeah. organizations. Yeah, or we get the worst of both worlds where it's a private monopolistic provider that gets inadequate supervision from the, uh, from the government. Mark Joffe, Senior Policy Analyst with Reason Foundation. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thanks for having me.